The passage on which our teaching is based comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that being rooted and firmly established, established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. Before I begin, I, I wanted to highlight uh, an important announcement. Uh, for all the men here, uh, we are having a men's retreat on September 22nd to 23rd. It's the first time we're having a men's retreat since I think 2016. So it's been a long time, long overdue. Uh, we'll be gathering at a, a retreat center. It's like a 15,000 square foot mansion over in Paris, California, P-E-R-R-I-S, and uh, it's about an hour away and will be a really good time. Details are forthcoming, but I want you to save the date because it's not too far away. It's Friday to Saturday, September 22nd to 23rd. I'm sure all of us here at one point or another, especially when we're young, have answered the question, if you had three wishes, what would they be? It's a question that my friends and I often pondered when I was a kid, and we debate over whose wishes were the best. And of course, there's the universal caveat that you cannot wish for what? More wishes, right? It's a fun exercise because your mind goes immediately to dream mode as you fantasize about what would be the most epic life, what would be the most fulfilling, joyful life. And what you say would reveal your deepest aspirations, your highest dreams. Inevitably, someone always wishes for a million dollars. Another might wish to be a professional basketball player. Someone else might be a little bit more altruistic and wish for world peace. I'll never forget what one of my kids said when he was around four to five years old. We asked this question, if you had three wishes, what would they be? And he blurted out, my wish is to pee rainbows. <laughs> we all started laughing at just how ridiculous of an answer that was. And so we asked him why. And he said with great pride, because every time I pee, there'd be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever felt more proud that day. 
Dear friends, how would you answer this question? What would you say? I believe your answers would reveal what you truly value. It reveals what you believe is the essence of happiness, what is the purpose of life. For example, if your wish is to be the richest person in the world, what does that say about what you truly treasure? If your wish is to find true love, to be successful, to be published, to be beautiful, what do those answers reveal about what your heart desires? Of course, as Christians, we have the opportunity to reveal our deepest longings every single day. As Christians, every moment we have the opportunity to reveal what we truly treasure. No, I'm not saying that as Christians we go around looking for lamps to rub or genies to order around. But what we do have is prayer. Every moment, God invites us to come before him and pour out our hearts to him. God invites us to reveal our deepest desires and longings to him. And so let me ask you, if I were to listen into your prayer life, if I had a transcript of your prayers from this past year, what would your prayers say about what you value? What would your prayers reveal about what you believe is the purpose of your existence? What is foundational to your fulfillment? What would they say? Chances are, when it comes to our prayer life, what we ask of God is not too much, but too little. When it comes to our petitions, when it comes to what we ask for, what we ask of God is far less than what he wants to give. It's like asking a five-year-old, for your birthday, I'll buy you anything you want, anything in this world, what do you want? And the five-year-old says, I want a McDonald's Happy Meal. And your response is, are you sure? I can buy you anything. But in his five-year-old mind, there's nothing better than that happy meal. So too, as Christians, God says, come to me and pour out your heart. And what we tend to ask for are relative happy meals compared to what God wants to give us. Is this not why Paul can confidently say at the end of our passage in verse 20, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, Paul's telling us God is all the time giving us more than what we ask because what we ask of God is far less than what he wants to give. And here in our passage, In Paul's prayer to the Lord on behalf of the Ephesians, he sets the bar higher than where we tend to go in our prayers. In this Holy Spirit-inspired prayer, he sets the bar rightly and gives us a lesson on how to pray. 
And there's three lessons that emerge from his prayer. The first lesson is this. Paul teaches us about the priority of the inner life, the inner man. I want you to notice that in his prayer, in these verses, Paul makes no reference to his or the Ephesians' external circumstances. This is quite surprising because at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul reminds the Ephesians that he is writing from prison. And later on, he writes about how his imprisonment is bringing deep distress to the Ephesian church. This is also surprising because we know that the Ephesian church was being persecuted by a pagan culture that did not understand its values. And so there's so much going on externally with their circumstances that Paul could have lifted up, but he doesn't. Instead, he says in verse 16, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. No mention of God set me free from this prison. God give me justice. God protect the church from persecution. No, he prays that the inner being might be strengthened by the spirit. Now, is Paul advocating, and am I advocating, that we should never pray for our circumstances? Of course not. In other places, we see Paul praying for healing, for protection, for relief. We know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul prays three times that a thorn of his flesh might be removed. We know that Jesus himself taught us to pray for our daily bread. And so please don't misunderstand me and think that to pray for our circumstances is wrong. No, God uses our circumstances to bring us to him. And please pray for those things. What I am saying is don't stop there. As if the sum total of your life consists of your outer world. Don't forget about your inner being. Some of you may have heard about a number of houses in Palos Verdes that were totally destroyed a couple weeks ago due to a landslide. Twelve homes and counting are now totally unlivable because the ground underneath them began to sink. And so you see a mailbox on a sidewalk, and then you see nothing, and you see just the, the, tip, the tops of the roofs like 20 feet below. I was watching the news really carefully. Do you know why? Because one of those homes was my parents' home. Thankfully, a home that they moved out of seven years ago. Now, the reason why I bring up this unfortunate event is because prior to the landslide, no one thought there was anything wrong with these houses. They were beautiful, manicured lawns with a view over a canyon. They were coveted in a, a gated community. But little did they know that hidden underneath was weakness in the ground, that lurking underneath were rocks and dirt buckling under the pressure. 
that the earth was not able to, to sustain the weight of these homes and was about to give way. Is that not a great metaphor for life? How many of us are like these homes that look beautiful on the outside, but underneath, buckling under the weight and pressure of life? We look competent and in control, well-groomed and dressed. Our social media pages showcase nothing but the best of our lives. And so everyone looks at us and says, wow, he or she, they've got it all under control. But underneath the circumstances, when it comes to our inner being, there's weakness, there's cracks, our souls are buckling under the weight and pressure of life. We are racked with anxiety, with worry, we're irritable, we sleep too little or we sleep too much. And yet even though we feel the stress being placed on our inner being, we continue the status quo. We continue to spend the majority of our time on our external circumstances rather than our inner being. We continue to buy furniture and move it into the home. We paint the walls while underneath it's about to give way. How many of us are headed towards burnout, towards a panic attack. It's only a matter of time before the ground underneath gives way. Gordon McDonald says this in his classic book, Ordering Your Private World. I believe that one of the great battlegrounds of our age is the private world of the individual. There is a contest that must be fought particularly by those who call themselves practicing Christians. Among them are those who work hard, shouldering massive responsibilities at home, at work, and at church. They're good people, but they are very, very tired, and thus they too often live on the verge of a sinkhole-like collapse. It's not uncommon that I'll ask someone, how are you doing? to which they respond with a flurry of answers describing the various activities their kids are engaged in, vacations that they went on, or transitions that are take place at work. But then when I ask, how's your spiritual life? It's like a deer caught in the headlights. Pause, long pause. And I know the reason why there's a long pause is because they haven't considered their spiritual life for a long time. And that concerns me. Yet here, Paul, when he prays for the Ephesians, prioritizes the inner life. May the Spirit of God strengthen your inner being. And the fact that Paul calls on the Holy Spirit to strengthen and give power to our inner being shouldn't surprise us. Because in the Bible, it's common to associate God's power with God's spirit. Do you recall what the angel said to Mary before Jesus was born? In Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
When Jesus began his earthly ministry, Luke 4, 14 writes, Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the disciples going around preaching with boldness and performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the greatest act, the greatest demonstration of power found in Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 1 verse 4 declares that Jesus rose again because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the very power of the Holy Spirit, which fueled Jesus' ministry and raised him from death to life, is the very spirit Paul prays would empower and strengthen our inner being. Should we not also do the same for one another and for ourselves? Lesson number two. We glean from Paul's prayer to always remember the gospel. That when we come to God in prayer, come to him as someone who's been washed, forgiven, and redeemed by Jesus. When you come to God in prayer, remember that you never come to him on your own two feet. I remember when my kids were a lot smaller, there were times when I would get really annoyed and upset. It's when we would go to see a concert or to see an outdoor movie or some kind of show, and the kids are standing there, and then these huge adults step right in front of them, blocking their view. Of course, they would turn around and look at me with a sad face. So what would I do? Pick them up and perch them on my shoulders. I think that's a good image to remember whenever we come to God in prayer. That when we pray, we're not standing on the ground with our own feet. We always come sitting on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Coming to God may seem daunting and overwhelming at times because we feel too small, we feel too unworthy, but know that you don't come alone. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you always come to God the Father through your mediator, Jesus Paul remembers the gospel in his prayer. We see it in the way he addresses God in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, not the judge, not the creator. I kneel before the Father. In Jesus, we who were once orphans have now been adopted into the family of God. That is our status. We are children of God. The second place we see the gospel is in verse 17. It almost seems like a throwaway verse, but I'm so glad that it's there. Paul prays in verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, pay careful attention to the verbs there, the tense there. I pray that you, 
being rooted and firmly established, past tense. He doesn't pray that the Ephesians will root themselves and establish themselves. No, Paul assumes that they're already rooted and established in God's love. And so their rooting and establishing is not a command to obey, but a description to remember. He's not telling them what to have and attain. He's telling them what they are. And Paul draws from both the agricultural world as well as the construction world. You are rooted in the soil of God's love. You are established. Your foundation rests upon God's love. And I'm thankful for this because it gives you and me hope. It gives us hope because even if our inner being is tearing apart at the seams, even if the worst case scenario happens and a sinkhole develops and our lives fall apart, praise God that it's not our willpower and faithfulness that forms the foundation of our souls. No, it is God's love. So even if we were to collapse, we fall upon the firm rock of Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, though we might lose a hold of God, he will hold fast to us. And that's the hope of the gospel. And that's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. In every other religion, the love of God is the goal of life. It's the reward. It's the prize we attain if we obey enough, are generous enough, are kind enough. If we follow these rules or that rules, these customs or say those prayers, if you do that enough, then at the end of your life, you might hear the words, I love you. But here Paul tells us that love is the very soil of the Christian life. It's the very air that we breathe it's not a prize for us to attain at the end of life. No, love is the very banner that hangs all over us in life. Did not Paul say earlier in Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. God's love is the very reason why we came to faith. God's love is not a prize for those who are worthy. It's the very blood that runs through our veins. God's love for us never wavers. It never flickers. It never expires. No matter what you do or what you've done, when you come to God the Father, you always come wrapped in love. 
And I think if we remember the gospel when we pray, when we see ourselves sitting on the shoulders of Jesus, we will pray more frequently because we're not scared of God. And we will pray more honestly because we know that God has forgiven us. This leads us to the third and final lesson about prayer. You may notice that this passage expresses one of my favorite benedictions that I say here at the end of service. Paul prays that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants us to comprehend the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. Now, these two verses may seem somewhat confusing, especially after what he just said about us being rooted and established in love. It's confusing because he just told us that love is the very soil and ground that we grow in. It's something we already have, but now in these verses, he's telling us to seemingly attain a greater comprehension of that love. So which is it, Paul? Is God's love something we already have or don't have? Is God's love something we should celebrate right now or something we should pursue? I think the confusion is cleared up when you understand the word translated as comprehend in verse 18. He says, he prays that we might comprehend the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. That word translated as comprehend comes from the Greek word katalambano. What does katalambano mean? It means to seize or capture by surprise. It means to grab a hold of something and wrap your arms around completely. As you can see, to catalambano, the love of God, is more than simply to know that God loves you. No, it means to behold that God loves you. It means to experience that love, to taste that love, to know more than just with your mind, but to feel it in the very bones of your being. The fact that Catalambano is associated with surprise is helpful. Because at least in my personal experience, those moments in my life where I think I really grasped God's love are moments that I did not anticipate or expect. They caught me by surprise. Have you ever gone to church with low expectations, going because you have to, you're a Christian and it's Sunday, thinking I'll go in and leave pretty much unchanged. You can be honest. <laughs> and yet, you entered the church with little expectation. And in the middle of worship, as you're singing a song, there's a phrase that just 
grabs you. It's a concept. It's a biblical term that you've known all your life, but in that moment, singing it, the Holy Spirit just lights your heart on fire, and you find yourself overwhelmed by the power and profundity of those words. Or you're listening to a sermon on a passage you've heard hundreds of sermons about, and yet the preacher says something that just strikes you like a lightning bolt, and you see afresh the truth of God's beauty and love like never before. That's what Paul is praying for. That's what Catalambano means. It's to have God's love so seeped into your heart that you, your, your, your life is filled to the brim to the point where Paul says you are filled now with the fullness of God. And how great is the love of God in the Marvel movie Endgame, there's a touching scene between Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, and his daughter, Morgan. As Tony tucks his daughter to sleep, he whispers to her, I love you tons, to which she responds, I love you 3,000. Now, when she says, I love you 3,000, is she saying, Dad, I've got a limit to my love, only up to 3,000, but not 3,001 or two. No. When she says 3,000, she's thinking of the biggest number she can conceive of. It's her way of saying, I love you with all of my heart. Paul, here, he's trying to, to really understand how much God loves us. And his heart's about to explode. And so using the limitations of human language, what comes out of his heart is, I pray that you would Catalambano experience deep down inside the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. That's his 3,000. And how long is God's love? Well, Paul told us in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that the length of God's love stretches from eternity to eternity. He tells us that God's love for us doesn't have a beginning. It was always there from before even time. How wide is God's love? Well, Paul has told us that it's a love that is as wide as the east is from the west, a love that reaches every nation, tribe, and tongue, that no matter who you are, what you've done, how far you've run away from him, how hard your heart might be, how cold you are to the gospel, no one is out of reach of God's love. No one. And how high is God's love? It's a love that spans heaven and earth. 
a love that stepped down from heaven above into this world, from glory to humility, to become a servant and become one of us. How deep is God's love? It's a love that went all the way to the depths of hell for us. Who bore our sins upon his shoulders and experienced the penalty and wrath of God so that you and I might be redeemed. Once you experience the length and the width, height, and depth of God's love, I guarantee the next time someone asks you if you had three wishes, your immediate answer is to experience God's love. Nothing is greater. Nothing is greater than that. Dear friends, these are the three lessons Paul teaches us about prayer. We must prioritize our inner life and not so focus on our external circumstance that we neglect our souls. We must remember the gospel and know that whenever we come to God, we come sitting on the shoulders of Jesus. And we must remember that there is no greater joy or aspiration than to experience the love of God. May that guide our prayer lives and direct us towards uh, how we ought to pray. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for Paul's prayer. Thank you for showing us that you are God that desires to give us the very best. And by giving us the very best, we're not talking about a life of ease and comfort, a life filled with many toys and travel and vacations. No, those things are far too small. You love us way too much to have us settle for such a life. Lord, you desire to give us yourself, to allow us to swim in the great expanse, the ocean of your boundless love. May that be our north star. May that guide us and direct us in our decisions, in the way we spend our time, in the way we uh, pursue various activities. May we live a life that declare Jesus and his love is my greatest treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.